0: This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, fighting against ageism in the workplace and the marketplace. Find out more at carp.ca.
1: Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Zneimer. With festival season set to begin, we look at how the Shaw Festival saved hundreds of jobs and bolstered the local economy throughout the pandemic. And a powerful account of what it's like to deliver medical assistance in dying from a doctor who pioneered it. But first, hear your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Despite the availability of life-saving COVID-19 vaccines, so many people died in the second year of the pandemic in the U.S., That America's life expectancy dropped for the second year in a row. The analysis of provisional government statistics found U.S. life expectancy fell by just under half a year in 2021, adding to a dramatic drop in 2020. Overall, U.S. life expectancy dropped to 76.6 years, the lowest in a quarter century. In the UK, an inquiry has been launched after official correspondence about procedures for when the Queen dies was accidentally leaked by the Welsh government. The correspondence and a security pamphlet marked official, sensitive, was emailed to a member of the public. The Welsh government said that no operational information was revealed, but it admits that the pamphlet should not have been shared. Francis Margaret, one of the world's top five cancer research centers, has received a $50 million donation in memory of media mogul and philanthropist Alan Slate. The Alan Slate Breakthrough Fund will support recruitment and allow researchers to approach their work in creative and unconventional ways. The donation from Emmanuel Gattuso, Slate's wife, and from the Slate Family Foundation comes at a time when cancer continues to be the leading cause of death in Canada. Alan Slate died of natural causes. Last year, he was 90. Remember, the little girl in the red dress from Schindler's List. She's now 32 years old and is on the front lines helping Ukrainian refugees in Poland. In the film, her red coat is the only color in the otherwise black and white film. Olivia Dabrowska lives in Poland, where the 1993 movie was made. Since Russia invaded Ukraine, she's been helping to find homes and raise funds for Ukrainian refugees. The College of the Holy Cross is renaming the science buildings on its campus in Worcester, Massachusetts, in honor of one of its most famous graduates, Dr. Anthony Fauci. The college announced that its science complex will be formally known as the Anthony S. Fauci Integrated Science Complex starting on June 11th, a date that coincides with Dr. Fauci's 60th class reunion weekend. I'm Libby Zneimer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. After two pandemic seasons, summer festivals are set to resume. One organization, the Shaw Festival, is emerging in much better shape than its peers, and it's because of one very smart decision. I talked with Executive Director Tim Jennings. Despite the pandemic, you managed to keep a lot of people employed.
2: We did. Over the whole two years, we've managed to keep everybody on. Uh, it was about 600 people uh, in in each of the two years. Um, some small changes between year one and year two, but, uh, but uh, overall, everybody has stuck around, and now we're on to our largest season ever, so very exciting.
1: A lot of it is attributed to one extremely smart decision, which was pandemic insurance.
2: Yes. My uh, CFO, Roy Reeves, and I, when I first started here back in 2015, uh, did a review with our insurance broker of all of our insurance and decided to take out several forms of what I would call black swan insurance, things that were uh, unlikely but uh, could have devastating effect. And uh, one of them is uh, where was pandemic or, uh, you know, uh, uh, widespread illness.
1: You were thinking more along the lines of a, a, a fl- flu like a regular flu or something contagious well,
2: SARS at right? h1 SARS had had a devastating effect on the Shaw Festival back in uh, the early 2000s and um, it, it actually took seven years to recover fully from the SARS um, uh, epidemic and um, and it had you know of course the epicenter of that was in Toronto um, I'd also been working in the US where I had seen 911 the effect of 9 eleven on um on the world i'd seen the crash in 2008 there were a variety of things that were sort of societal level problems black swan events that that we felt uh, a solid need for uh, taking out additional insurance and really thinking through that
1: with this insurance i'm i'm assuming that that level of insurance is extremely expensive and was everyone on side with that kind of expenditure
2: the uh, performance interruption policy we took out actually uh, really really was not a seriously expensive um, um, policy, and we did in fact the differential between kind of the one, two, three million dollar kind of policies that many of my colleagues had, and um, and our twenty plus million dollar policy was was not a significant differential. Um, not as, certainly not for a company of our size.
1: Going forward, if you want to get that coverage again, are you deemed a high risk? Uh,
2: we're not allowed to get that coverage again. They not only did, not only did they close the division and fire everybody in it, they've, uh, <laughs> they've um, uh, there isn't a company uh, that I know of on the planet offering that anymore.
1: For the rest of it, for keeping your people employed, uh, the wage subsidy helped.
2: It did. So one of the things that happened very quickly with the program uh, uh, that we had was that we realized we we had everybody started in uh, rehearsing in February. And of course, in March, when things went down, um, we uh, we kept everybody going and rehearsing digitally. They were all doing rehearsing by Zoom, which is something I'd like not to do again. And so everybody was continuing along, working very hard to get the shows up and running as best we could and then it became, in May, it became very clear that uh, we weren't going to be able to continue to do that, that shows were not going to go on the way we'd hoped. Um, so I pivoted, um, we, we released the 96 artists who are independent contractors working here from their contracts and hired them on the next day as education and outreach specialists. So 96 people, a massive summer jobs program for us, uh, doing online and, and and in some cases in-person on lawns, um, uh, education and outreach events for, uh, all summer long and then actually into the winter, and it continued. And so these 96 people, uh, along with the other 500 people that work here, um, were all able to be covered under the wage subsidy, which really allowed all of our artists to be, and arts workers and artisans, to be fully employed the whole time.
1: A lot of other arts organizations pivoted online with varying Success. So, were you at about the same level as other organizations, or did you do better with all of
2: that? Neither Tim Carroll nor I really believe in online performances. So, we did do a few. We did readings of a couple of plays, but we didn't do um, large-scale video performances of plays because that's not what we're here to do. As a charity, our focus is on live relationship to art and live performance and the basic human needs that live art serves.
1: Do you find that helped you keep a, a level of donations up?
2: Oh, well, it sure did. Our donors have been unbelievably generous in continuing their donations through the last couple of years. By far, the largest amount of money we came we took in was from the more than fourteen thousand households who donate to us annually, and those numbers stayed static or grew uh, over the last 2 years so we we have more members now than we did when in 2019 which was our highest year previous to the pandemic over 7 million dollars a year of of individual donations in the last 2 years just to the theater and uh, and then more to our foundation as well and uh, and it's been you know that that plus the wage subsidy plus insurance plus we were able to do sixty-five performances of concerts in twenty 2020. twenty. In twenty twenty-one, we ran the largest season of theater in North America with seventeen productions and over, over four hundred and fifty performances. So, really, it was um, we, we didn't think that was going to happen when we started. We, we actually lost three hundred performances last year, as well as that number. But, but it was a massive kind of you know the optimism of what we've been doing and the focus on life relationship.
1: So, what would you say you've learned having gone through this?
2: To keep up your optimism, I would say that you know if you think you, there is if you just keep looking for a way to do it, there is a way.
1: Tim Jennings, thank you so much.
2: Oh, I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you for having me.
1: That was Shaw Festival Executive Director Tim Jennings. I'm Libby Zneimer and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, a powerful memoir from a doctor on the front lines of medical assistance in dying.
0: You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, offering members-only discounts that can save you thousands of dollars a year. Find out more at carp.ca.
1: She started her career in the maternity ward and pivoted to the end of life. Dr. Stephanie Green was one of the first doctors to deliver medical assistance in dying in Canada, and she tells the powerful story in her new book, This is Assisted Dying. You start the book with uh, an eloquent, I don't know what I'd even call it, a sort of uh, a call to action. You say, imagine being able to do these things. Tell me about that. For some, it's the right choice. Um, it can allow them to
3: to find the closure they need, to say goodbye to the people they love. You know, when you know the date and the time that you're going to end your life, you have a finite period of time to use. And I find that people use it with, with purpose and with intent once they know that that's coming. They can say goodbye, they can find closure, they can rectify old wounds, or they can choose not to. They can have a celebration. They can... Uh, say goodbye to friends and coworkers and really say the things that need to be said. Uh, there's a certain amount of closure that I've seen uh, happen. So I I think there there are some benefits in that way. And I I really think that when you, when you know when and how you're going to die and you have this opportunity to live those final days or weeks in in the way that you intend, you, you really grab onto it and live it intensely. I find assisted dying is more about living and how you want to live than it is actually about dying.
1: You took this up uh, literally just as the legislation was passed. What was that like?
3: Yeah, I was, I was one of the first uh, providers in the country. There were very few people who stepped forward to do this work. And, and I won't lie to you, it was a little bit scary. I felt very much like a medical student again. I, you know, I was eager to learn. I was eager to help people, but I really didn't know exactly what I would come up against. I mean, little things, everything was new. You know, you know, where do I get the medications? Which pharmacist is going to work with me? Where do I get the IV tubing? And who's going to put that IV in? I haven't started an IV in years. You know, what would be like funeral homes and say that I, I knew exactly what time needed them to show up on Thursday. They time I was a little bit nuts at first. Everything, every
1: step was new. I remember at the beginning, some of the doctors providing this, uh, you know, they kept a very low profile because uh, they were getting protests. I consider myself quite lucky. I didn't have too much of
3: that. Um, I live on Vancouver Island. The people of Vancouver Island have embraced uh, the arrival of this care, I would say. How do you feel after you've provided yeah, I appreciate the question. I, I was quite nervous at first. Uh, you know, my colleagues in, in the Netherlands, especially, had said to me, make sure you take the day off, make sure you, you know, check in with yourself, give yourself, yourself some time to recover. Um, and I did all that for the first few uh, procedures. Um, and I'm not sorry that I did. But I, I really find that when, um, when I help someone, when I facilitate their final wishes, you know, the, the situations I see are intense, they're very emotional. Uh, Sometimes they are indeed tragic. Uh, They're always sad. Somebody's life is ending. Um, But at the same time, um, I have been somewhat overwhelmed by the gratitude of my patients and their families. Um, And that really has left me feeling not bad uh, when I do this work. I mean, to be honest, this work has turned out to be profoundly meaningful to myself, to to my patients, to their families, to my colleagues. I feel like when I, when I walk out of the procedure, more times than not, I feel like I've helped someone fulfill their, their final wishes, their dying wishes, and I, I feel good about my work. I, I know the optics of that sound a bit kooky, but I'm, I'm quite satisfied with my work. I don't feel badly about it at all.
1: Most of your patients are people who are dying of cancer, Correct. Yeah, if I look at my own statistics
3: about 70, between in my personal practice, between 70 and 75% of my patients uh, do have a diagnosis of end-stage cancer. And nationally, that number is about 68%. So It's pretty consistent across the board. That's true.
1: I have a very personal view of this. I, I'm a two-time cancer survivor, and the last one was extremely serious. I'm kind of lucky to be here. But it seems to Congratulations. me... Thank you. It seems to me that in, in the case certainly of cancer patients, yes, uh, they're choosing the time and date of their own death, but it's it actually turns out to be, you know, just a few days before their natural death would occur.
3: And most patients find resources, inner resources especially that they didn't know that they, you know, would have when, when things change. Uh, and get a little bit uh, more through decline. Uh, people who maybe once said, oh, if I can't get out of bed on my own, I would want to end my life. You know, they find that actually not being able to get out of bed is not so terrible. They have good palliative care available to them. And and some people go on and either have a supportive natural death, even knowing they could have a, an assisted death, and others choose not to go through that decline. So, well, a certain percentage will wait to that final stage and then ask me to help them nearly you know, days or weeks, short weeks before the end of their life. Other people will come to me and, and ask me to help them before they go through that final decline, before they become bedbound. bound It's a very, very personal choice. What made you write this book? When I first started doing this work, I found myself in the most extraordinary of circumstances. You know, in places I never thought I'd be, having discussions I never thought I'd have witnessing scenes that I never thought I would be invited to to witness. And it was just really extraordinary. And people would ask me about my work. What do you do? What is it like? And I I wanted to explain it. It's not really cocktail party conversation. I wanted to find a way to explain what it is that I do and what assisted dying is, because I think there is a lot of misinformation out there,
1: a lot of myths still. I really felt the strong desire to share that. The book is really, really interesting. Dr. Stephanie Green, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. That was Dr. Stephanie Green with her book, This is Assisted Dying. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide.
0: Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Hadi. Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.